Jesus is the living God, and he is the God of the living church. So how could a church of the living God be dead? And what does it mean for a church to be dead? We will talk about that in this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason, the website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and videos. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation with the study of the seven letters to seven churches, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we have gone through four of the letters already, the letters to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira, and we are now on the letter to the church at Sardis. So let's just dive right in and start looking at this letter by reading the passage, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, reading from the New King James, New King James Version. Verse 1, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that which, re- which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Therefore, remember how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so we can tell right off the bat that this is not a letter full of commendations for a church. It actually has a, Jesus has a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, admonitions and criticisms for this particular church. So before we break this letter down, break this passage down, let's just look at the actual city of Sardis. Remember, these seven churches, these were seven actual historical churches in ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And each one of these uh, churches has, uh, each one of the cities in these churches, you know, were actually there and actually have some of the same issues that Jesus, had, all the same issues that Jesus was talking about. So, the city of Sardis in Turkey, in Asia Minor, is very interesting. It's not the same as some of the other cities we, we've talked about. It is not the same economic center as Ephesus or, or um, Smyrna. It's also not a religious center like Pergamum or Pergamus. And it was not even a, a blue-collar industrial city like Thyatira. No, Sardis was actually a very small city. In fact, it's all, it was barely a city. If when you look at it, it, it was more like a castle on a hill. It was very small. It was, if you look at, um, if you've seen medieval castles on top of hills or in, in books or in movies and television shows like, you know, Game of Thrones and any of the Arthurian legends, and you've, you've seen them depicted, you see a, a fortified castle on top of a mound or a hill. That's what Sardis was. Not big, but it, it was a walled sort of castle on top of this hill. And it had a reputation for being invincible. The reason being that the hill that Sardis was built on top of was very steep, very rugged, very harsh terrain. 
it would be very difficult for an army to conquer Sardis because they'd have to climb their army all the way up that steep, jagged hill. And while they were doing that, the defenses of Sardis would be able to just kind of pick them off with bows and arrows and spears and things like that. So it was a lot of trouble to try to conquer Sardis. And furthermore, being on top of a hill, it didn't have a ton of natural resources. So there, there wasn't very much economic advantage to conquering Sardis. It, it, it didn't really give you much if you conquered it. So most empires throughout the ages just didn't bother with it. They figured like, if we conquer Sardis, it's going to cost us a ton of our troops. It's going to cost us a lot of time and resources. And if you conquered it, you really wouldn't gain that much. So many empires just left it alone. The Assyrians left it alone. The Babylonians left it alone. The Persians just said, you know, it's not worth it. And again, it had this this air, this name, this reputation as just being this invincible city on a hill that people just didn't bother with. Now, that all changed around the time of the Greek Empire. Now, the Greeks, as they were conquering the the Western world, the, the Mediterranean area, they, like all the other empires, looked on, onto Sardis and decided they wanted to see, hey, was it worth what was it worth doing? Was it worth conquering the city? So they sent a scout to scout out Sardis, and of course, the scout goes there and he sees what everyone else sees. There's this city on this jagged hill, and it would just be a, a, a big waste of resources and time to try to conquer it. And he was the, the scout was about to go back and, and report this, but he decided to do something very interesting. He went around to the back of Sardis, the the the, the hill that Sardis was on. And he saw one of the guards of Sardis drop his helmet. His helmet dropped down the side of the castle, rolled down the hill. But instead of just letting it go, go down this jagged hill, the soldier went down and started, he climbed down the hill. And he's and the, and the scout said, hey, how is he doing this? Well, as it turns out, on the back of the hill of Sardis, the, the mountain that it was on, erosion over the years had cut grooves into the hill. And these groups were, were these little areas that the, the soldier could use to climb down. So the soldier climbed down the hill, got his helmet, and went back up. Now, most scouts who go to Sardis didn't bother going around. They would just see the front of it. They would see the facade of Sardis and say, no way, you know, I'm not doing it. This scout went back and he saw the weakness that even though it had this air of invincibility, if he just took a little bit of a closer look, you would see that it could be easily accessible. The scout went back to, to the Greek army. He told them about this. The Greek army came back. They went around the back of Sardis. They easily climbed up the hill and they conquered it. And that was that. And Sardis was conquered. And again, because it didn't have very many natural resources, it never became a prominent city. It was used mostly as kind of a storehouse for weapons and things like that that the empire needed because, again, it was still you know tough to get to. It wasn't impossible, as the facade had said before, but it was still a, a, a useful place to store things. So the hallmark of Sardis is that it had a reputation which was actually false. It presented itself as one thing when in fact it was not the thing it presented itself to be at all. And that is interesting when you look at the letter and what Jesus actually says about the city of Sardis and more importantly, the church it had, which had the same characteristics as the city. So let's go now and just uh, break down this verse. And to the angel or messenger of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as usual, Jesus begins each one of these letters with the greeting and he gives a different title of himself. In this case, the title was the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God is actually an idiom for the Holy Spirit. And of 
court. And we'll see that actually in the next chapter, chapter four, when we see those same seven spirits in heaven, they represent seven is, is the number of complete, it's, it's number of perfection, but that word perfection actually means completeness. We'll actually talk about that in a couple of verses. Perfect means complete. It doesn't mean flawless. It means complete. So these are the, this is the complete spirit of God, which is of course the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars, as we found out in Revelation chapter one, is a messenger to the seven churches. So G the title that Jesus gives himself is that of the, the Holy Spirit and the messenger, the message to these seven churches. Continuing, I know your works. He says this in every single letter. Jesus knows our works, and that's either comforting or frightening, <laughs> depending on what your works are. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead. Let's look at the word name. The word name in the Bible is not just nomenclature. It's not just what your name happens to be. Your name or the name in the Bible represent, it, it means all that you represent. So when we talk about the name of Jesus. We don't just mean the word Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, -S, or Yeshua, or Yehoshua in Greek. I mean, Yehoshua is his Hebrew. Yeshua is Greek. It's not just that name. It means all he represents. So when you pray in the name of Jesus, you're not just mouthing the word Jesus. You are praying in the name of all that Jesus represents, who he is. So they have a name. They have a reputation. They have a designation that they are alive, but they are actually dead. So they're presenting themselves as a, a reputation of a church that is living, but they are dead. What does that mean? Well, that's why it's important to have definitions for all your words. Our brains work according to definitions. Whenever you're talking to someone you, and you're using words, you're communicating with them, each one of those words is a container of information. And in order to effectively communicate, you need to have a definition for every word you have. And the two of you, if you're talking to another person, you should be in agreement on what that definition is so you can have a constructive communication. That's why at the early in the early days of Faith by Reason, I made it a point to define my terms. In fact, if you go to faithbyreason.net, you will see a category called terminology. Terminology is a specific category that I put everything, every blog or podcast I use with that, that I've uh, created, recorded, written, that wherein I define or I try to include non-contradictory non biblical definitions for these key words. And I do that for the words alive, alife, and death. It's because there's some very important biblical terms and it's very important that we get those right. And what is the definition of life? Biblically, non-contradictory, the definition of life is the ability to repair. What is the difference between a dead body and a living body? Well, <laughs> aside from the smell. The definition of, the, the difference between a living and dead body is a living body can repair and grow. A dead body cannot. If you are alive, it is because your cells are dividing and growing and you can repair. If I, if I cut, I'm alive. So if I cut my finger, it's going to heal. It's going to repair that damage and I'll continue to grow. My cells will continue to divide. On the other hand, if I was not alive, then I would not be able to repair the damage. The reason we are alive and, and able to continue living is because we can repair any damage that's done. And we are all, we're constantly being damaged. We're, we're damaging ourselves. When, when the first like, you know, 20 plus years of our lives, we're growing, we're, we're maturing, our organs are growing, our bones are growing, and all these things are happening. Then we reach that point in our early, mid-20s where we actually stop growing. We, we become as tall as we're ever going to be. Our organs are our optimal level. And then we kind of plateau, and then we, they start deteriorating as we get into 
page. That's just what happens to us. But as long as we're able to repair to a degree that we can continue to function, we will be alive. But as we continue to live, the, the foods we eat, our environment, and just age continues to damage our vital cells and organs. And eventually we get to the point where we can't repair anymore, where so much damage has been done that our organs can no longer repair, our organs fail, and we die. I mean, of course, unless you, you know, experience some kind of catastrophic injury or car accident or something like that where you just can't repair anymore, old age will eventually get us to the point where our bodies deteriorate, we can no longer repair, and we die. We no longer grow. Spiritually, it's the same thing. Spiritual life is the same as physical life in the sense that it is repair and growth. You repair by repenting. God wants it. That's why God wants us to repent because we turn away from the things that are damaging us and we turn towards God and then we continue to grow through the Holy Spirit. And so if you are spiritually alive, you are repenting, you're repairing and you're growing. If you're spiritually dead, you are stagnant. You are no longer growing. You're no longer repenting. You are not repairing or growing. So this church at Sardis was spiritually dead because they weren't doing those two things. They were not repenting of their misdeeds and they were not growing. And that is truly tragic. So let's keep going. Verse two, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. So they're told to be watchful, be alert. They, they were not alert. They were stagnant. As I just said, they were not growing. They were just stagnant. They no repair, no growth, but they had a, apparently they had something about them that was good, was, was about to die. So they had one thing that was still alive, but it was like on the brink of dying. So they were what, whatever they were doing, they were doing one thing right or, or, or very few things right. Barely. They were about to die. He wants and, and Jesus tells them to strengthen it. Whatever you're doing right, strengthen that one thing or those few things you're doing right and make sure that they don't die because everything else you're doing, you're dead. Says for I not for I have not found your works perfect before God. And again, that word perfect does not mean flawless, like we see the word perfect. It means complete. So whatever they were doing, they didn't do a complete job of it. They did a partial job. The part they were doing that were good, that was good, is cut, they're just barely hanging on to that. But the rest they failed. Verse three, remember therefore how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. So. Jesus is telling them to go back to the original way they received and heard the word of God. And it's interesting that, that I think Sardis has a lot in common with Ephesus. I think that Sardis is kind of the daughter of Ephesus in that, remember, Ephesus, they were the church that was loveless. And Jesus told them to go back and remember their first love. Remember that initial love they had. And God is telling, Jesus is, is telling the church of Sardis a similar thing. Remember how you received. Remember those first things you heard. What was the, what's the first thing you you, you hear um, as you're a Christian? Salvation. So it sounds to me like salvation is the the thing that, that they need to remember and hold on to. So receive, remember how you received and heard the salvation and the grace of God. Hold, and that grace, that word grace is going to be important as we go down the road here in, in this lesson. Remember it, hold fast, and of course, repent. Repair. He's telling you to repair. Continuing on, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So it seems that Sardis is admonished repeatedly to watch, to be alert. They're stagnant. They are not watching. They are just, they're, they're not growing. They're not, 
preparing. They are just stagnant. They're slothful. And Jesus tells them twice to be alert, to be watchful. And if they don't watch, what does he say? He says, I will come upon you as a thief. Now that harkens back to the book of Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, where Jesus talks about how he will come upon Christians who are not aware as a thief. Now, what does a thief come to do? A thief does not come to do good things for you. A thief comes to take something. And Jesus tells them that if they are not aware, he will come upon them as a thief. Now, he tell, now Paul tells the Thessalonians that because they are in the light, they, he, Jesus will not come upon them as a thief. So the, the church of Thessalonians, which also had problems, was not as in anywhere near bad a shape as Sardis because Paul told them that, that they are in the light so that Jesus will not come upon them as a thief. But Jesus is telling the church at Sardis that because of their slothfulness, because of their lack of watchfulness, he will come upon them as a, a thief. And what does a thief do? He will take something. So Jesus is telling them that if they are not watchful, Jesus himself is going to come on them and take something from them. What will he take from them? Well, we're going to find that out in, in, in just a bit. But let's go to verse four. You have a few names even as artists who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Let's look at the word name again, because you see that word name come up a couple of times here in, in, in Sardis. That word name is the word onomos. That is actually the root word. Onoma, excuse me. Onoma is the root word of, of, of name. That is also the root of the word denomination. Onomo, denomination. I think you can see it right there. What do we call ourselves in, in our current church age? We call ourselves a denominational church. Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Episcopalian, Anglican, so forth and so on. Those are all denominations. And th those are the, those come from, from onomo, which means name. And I think it's going to be really pertinent as we continue this study. But he says you have a few names, a few onomo, a few denominations, even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. So this commendation, which is like the only mild commendation Jesus has for the church, is not aimed towards the church at large. He's talking about individuals. There, there are a few of you in Sardis. There's a few of you in this city who have a name, a reputation, and that's not defiled, and they shall walk with me in white. And he says here, they have not defiled their garments. Garments are always an idiom of righteousness. When Jesus talks about your garments, your clothing, he's talking about the righteousness in which you clothe yourself. And the white garments indicate righteousness, not man's righteousness, because, again, our righteousness are as filthy rags as we're told in the Old Testament. In fact, that word filthy rags is actually a, it's a pretty mild version of the word. The true definition of filthy rags means in, in the biblical terms, it means used menstrual cloths. When he says in the Old Testament, I'll have the actual verse up on the screen. It says what you said, man's righteousness is, is as filthy rags. He's being much more graphic than the polite King James. He's saying your righteousness, what you think right is righteous. You doing what you think is good. You being good on your own or being righteous on your own is the same as a used menstrual cloth. And I'll just let you use your imagination to see what Jesus means, what God means by that. He does not have a high opinion of man's attempts to be righteous on his own. Man cannot be righteous on his own. Man on his own without God is completely unrighteous and filthy. But to those few in Sardis who who have not defiled their garments and um, are still doing the right thing, 
then he will give them new garments of white. And he talks about white garments throughout the Bible. Verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, as I mentioned again, and will not, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Whoa, wait a minute. What's the book of life? The book of life is the book that has all people who are saved in it. And Jesus is saying here, there are some who will not have their name blotted out from the book of life, which means that there are some people who he will blot out of the book of life. That means there are some people who were saved who will not, who will be blotted out. Now, does that mean he's saying you will lose your salvation? Not technically. And I don't want to get into a whole discussion of uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, where determinism versus complete free will. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about Calvinism in a, in a bit. But I want to make this known that he is not saying you're going to you can't lose your salvation. However, because salvation is, is a gift, God is not Jesus is not going to take your salvation from you against your will. However, just like any other gift, you can give it away. You can give up on it. There are you can become a Christian. I'm not an, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminius either. However, I do believe I, I, I believe that you're I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I believe that once you're saved. No one can take away your salvation because it's your choice. However, you can choose to give it up. And we'll talk about that more in, in, in a bit. But being blotted out of the book of life means that you're not going to go to heaven. The book of life, there's a, this conception that you are written down in the book of life when you become saved. I don't believe that. I believe that, the, that when you are born, you're in the book of life. Because when you are a child, before you reach the age of accountability, you're already written in that book. Now, you can choose at some point to take your name out of that book if you, upon your death, have never accepted Christ. Now, the only way to be blotted out of that book of life is if you give up on your Christianity. If you voluntarily say, I'm not going to be a Christian, I'm not going to be in, in the church of the living God, which is what people in Sardis are doing. They are not growing. And if you're not going to grow in, in, in God, then Jesus says right here, he will take your name out of the book of life. You will be considered no better than any other sinner who never accepted Jesus. Harsh words, but hey, they're not my words. They are Jesus' words. Uh, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There's that word name again. That, that phrase name is all through this scripture. So there's something about having a name here, having that onomo, that denomination. It, it's, it's just very important. Whose name are you lifting up? Are you lifting up the name of God or are you lifting up your own name? Are you lifting up your own reputation or the reputation of God, of Jesus. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the common salutation in all the letters. Okay, I want to get to the prophetic part of this because I think it's extremely provocative and interesting. But let's just spend a, a little bit of time looking at the other two uh, areas of, of, of application. That is the, the congregational and the, and the personal. So what is it like to be in a congregation that is dead? Well, it's a, con a congregation that's not growing and not repenting. Why wouldn't you repent? Why wouldn't a church repent? The only reason that you wouldn't repent, the only reason you wouldn't admit you were wrong is if you don't think you're wrong. Are there churches out there who don't think they're wrong? There absolutely are. There are churches out there who believe that they have their doctrine so right that it's perfect. They don't need to repent. They have, they're 100% in control. They got it right. And everybody else is wrong. The hallmark of a Sardis church, a Sardis congregation, a congregation that is not repenting, is a congregation that has a holier-than-thou, hypocritical attitude, and we see them all the time. This is the type of church 
where everyone comes dressed up in their Sunday best and they just have this pious attitude. Oh, we are the true church and God loves us and we got it right and everybody else is wrong. See, in order to repair, you have to be contrasted. We've talked about contrastive thinking throughout Faith by Reason. That is one of the hallmarks of Faith by Reason is contrastive thinking. Contrastive thinking is admitting the possibility that you could be wrong. That is the only way you can ever grow is if you admit that you could be wrong and then God, Jesus, can come along and show you where you were wrong and you can grow, but you have to repent. If you don't think you're wrong, if you are in pride and you think you're right, then you can't grow. So this church, the churches in Sardis, the churches that have the Sardis attitude are churches that believe they have it right. And what they do is because they believe they have it right, they turn their perceiving onto other people. Instead of focusing on the areas in their lives where they need to repair, they look at other people and talk about where they need to repair. They are the ones that are always judging other people. If you are in a Sardis church and you're dressed up in your Sunday best and you're, you just think you, you have your, you're, you're dressed down to your ankles. If you're a woman, if you're a man, you're in a three-piece suit with a vest and you're just looking the best you could possibly be. And someone walks into your church, let's say a woman who is either young in Christ or is a seeker who, who just doesn't know and is coming to the church to try to find their way. And let's say she doesn't know any better and she dresses a little more provocatively than you should dress in the church. You know, you're showing a little too much skin. Well, if you are a, a humble Christian, you will see that, you know what, you know, this lady isn't dressed the way she should be, but hey, I'm no better than she is. You know, I'm going to take her to the side and I'm going to say, you know, excuse me, miss, uh, you're very beautiful and I know you're, you you want to be beautiful and look, and look nice here, but, you know, just, you might want to dress in a way that's a little less provocative so that you aren't a temptation to other people around you. And, you know, we just, we love you and we, we want you to be your best for God. On the other hand, if you're one of those judgmental churches, you're not going to say anything to her. You're just going to go off to your girlfriends or your guy friends and say, uh, look at her. <laughs> look at how she's dressed. She's not dressed for Jesus. She's not one of us. Or if you see a, a man there and he's not in his three-piece suit, he's just maybe in a jeans and a t-shirt because he's just trying to, he's trying to find God. And instead of, you know, just welcome him as he is, oh, look at him. Oh, he's not, he, he just, look, he just came in off the street. He doesn't respect Jesus. He doesn't want to look good for God. We all know churches like that. You may even belong to a church like that, that is judgmental. And instead of looking at what you're doing wrong and trying to be the best that you can be, you're looking at other people and looking at them and what they're doing wrong, looking at the doctrine of other people and how their doctrine is wrong instead of looking at ways that your doctrine could be wrong. We know these kind of Christians. Nobody likes these kinds of Christians. They are just horrible to be around. They are just, again, hypocritical because nobody's perfect and they're imperfect. If you see these Christians in church, they look all nice and pious and you get home the husband's abusing his wife. He's watching pornography. The wife is gossiping about everybody. The kids are not, they're, they're you know, out having promiscuous sex and doing drugs. But hey, they have, a, they have a name that they're alive, but in truth, they're dead. They're not growing. They're stagnant. Individually, we deal with the same things. As I just said, you may, have, you may individually put yourself, out, put yourself out as a true child of God. You wear your cross at work. You have your Bible in your hand when you go to work, and you're always telling people about Jesus and how great Jesus is, but then behind closed doors, you're watching pornography, you're drinking too much, you're doing, you're, you're doing a little, a little drugs in the, in, in the garage someplace, you, and your kids are reflecting that same kind of life. You have a reputation that you're this pious Christian, but in truth, you are not growing because you believe you have it all together. You are not humble. You are in pride.
And that's where we're going to end things for this week. Uh, we are near the bottom of the hour, and the next portion would be the prophetic uh, point of view, where we look at where the Church of Sardis lies on the spectrum of church history, which would be, again, the Reformation period. However, that's going to be another 30, 40 minutes plus of content, and I've been going over the last few episodes. So what I want to do is kind of give you a break and just keep this one around 30 minutes. And then next week, we will do part two of our look at the Church of Sardis, where we will, again, look at the prophetic point of view and see um, how uh, Sardis, uh, where Sardis is, again, on the, uh, the historic scale in, in its area, in, in its place, excuse me, in church history. And that will be, again, the period of Reformation that happened after the zenith of the Catholic Church. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for watching. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason. You can subscribe here on YouTube by just clicking on the subscribe button and hitting the notification bell. You can also do so on faithbyreason.net by putting your email address into that right navigation area and you will be notified as soon as new episodes are available. And I will talk to you next week when we conclude our study of Sardis with part two, the prophetic or church history point of view.